darker and darker. We just got to look more to Jesus, look at the light to where we're not focusing on the dark. We're not, we can't put our heads in the sand, should not put our heads in the sand. But as the darkness grosses out, we can turn our head and look at something better, something better to look at, amen, so that it don't overburden us. We should have some burden for the lost and have a burden, pray for them, fast for them, that we shouldn't be burdened, you know. We shouldn't get depressed or overly frustrated, but knowing that all this is going to come to an end. Amen. Let's go in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, great Holy Spirit, we thank you, Father, for what you have already done, that you're in control for what you're doing, for what you're going to do. We've read the end of the book. We know, God, that you're in control, that you're going to have the victory. Your family is going to have the victory. Your bride, your children, your people, your nation, your kingdom is going to have the victory. Victory is already ours. We must live in it. We must claim it, use the power and authority that you've given us. We ask, Father God, that you help us to be bold, to also loving. Help us, God, to know when to rebuke and when to have long-suffering and patience. Help us, Lord God, to follow in your footsteps. We ask you, Lord God, to help us to do what you would have us to do. We ask, Lord God, for your special help today as we fast and as we're here at these services. Help us, Lord, to not be distracted by the world and its darkness but to put our face, our eyes, our focus, and our ears upon you, Father God, upon the light, that the more we look upon you, the more that we will be changed to your glorious image. Amen. Praise God. We ask God that you please consider our prayers and our fastings on this day for the deliverance of the lost, that people's eyes will be opened, that people uh, that are planning to to distribute candy tonight and tracks tonight and open their doors to the evil and allow the evil on the, onto their uh, doorsteps and onto their property, that, God, you would change their mind, that, God, you would open their eyes to see, Lord, what they're doing with the compromise, just keeping a foot in the door, keeping the door open to the evil. Ask God to help them understand what they're doing, Lord, that we're not supposed to compromise with this. Ask, Lord God, you help uh, the people when they dress up to be disgusted, that their eyes become open, just all of a sudden, that their eyes will be open to what they're doing, the evil of it, that parents will realize what they're doing to their children, that they're sacrificing their children to the devil. Lord God, Lord, we plead, Lord, in fasting and in prayer that you consider our petitions. We pray that we are drawn closer to you this day through prayer and in fasting, crying out for the laws, crying out for deliverance and salvation for people, that we are drawn closer to you ourselves. Then you will hear our prayers, Lord. We pray for anybody that's planning on kidnapping or murdering or sacrificing anybody today, tonight, this evening, tomorrow, 
change their plans, that they would feel the conviction, that they would feel guilty, that they would know it's wrong, that they would think about the lives of the person that they want to take, that they would think about the lives of the children, the parents, the brothers, the sisters, the husbands, the wives, the grandparents. Lord God, that they would consider love, that they would consider love, Lord. That the darkness of their heart be penetrated by the light of love. That the darkness of their mind be penetrated by the light, Lord, of love. Lord, help me, Lord. We pray that if there's anybody in the party who kidnapped, that they will find a way of escape, that the ropes and strings will be weakened, the duct tape will be weakened, that the door will be left unlocked, the window will be left unlocked, that someone will come unexpectedly to interrupt, stop, Lord God, we pray for intervention. We pray for holy angels to intervene. We pray for earthquakes, for floods, for lightning, for tornadoes, whatever it may take to bring about a deliverance and a rescue. We pray, Lord, for those people that have been kidnapped in the past and that got loose, for healing of their mind, for healing of their heart, spirit, flesh, and that they will find peace and joy comfort, contentment in you, Lord Jesus. And even us, as we think about these evil things, that all the hurt and darkness, pain, will be just flushed out of us through the Holy Spirit, that we will receive joy comfort and peace, even in the midst of all this darkness, even in the valley of the shadow of death, that we will not fear evil, that we will not fear evil, but that we will stand boldly in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in us with joy and in peace, that the wickedness would not steal our joy, that the wickedness, that the darkness, that the demonic ram would not steal our peace. We know who we are in you. We know who you are, Father, and that you're in control, that you even allow these things for only a time and a season. Judgment is coming. We need to pray for judgment more. We ask God to help us to do what is right. Pray for what is needed. Pray, God, for what is needed, Lord, physically and spiritually, mentally and emotionally, for the church of God and for the people. Pray, Father God, your will and your services. Pray, Father God, that you would put your words in my mouth and let me not be hindered by emotion. Let me not be hindered by offense. Let me not be hindered by fear. Let me not be hindered by anything or anyone or any person or any spirit. We ask, Lord God, thy will be done. Your words be spoken. Help us, God, to accept only the truth. Help us, Lord, to test all things. Help us, God, to test rightfully and not according to our own opinion and our own doctrine and our own needs and our own wants, but only according to what your will is, what the truth is, what you would want, what our real needs are rather than our faith. Ask God for blessing and a help for all those that listen over the internet.
that she would see victory in her family. Pray for Melissa in Pennsylvania for peace and direction. We pray for Joshua and Jenny in Texas for direction, help. Pray, Lord, for our families and our friends. We pray for this neighborhood. God, you've led us to this neighborhood. We pray, God, that us meeting in this neighborhood will make a spiritual difference to the spiritual realm in this neighborhood. We pray to anybody that may be passing by any time or dwelling in the woods that one word can make all the difference between life and death to deliver them from evil, to deliver them from the devil's snares. We pray if we're deceived on anything that you deliver us from the darkness, from the deception. We pray, God, that we won't block the light. We won't block the progress of what you want done, Lord. That we won't block your will. That we won't block the kingdom of God. That we won't hinder the spirit, God. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come soon, Lord. We pray for the uh, families of the uh, people that died in the Russian uh, airplane crash in Egypt, Sinai. Pray for any survivors. We pray for the families that's been left behind, children, parents, brothers, sisters, grandparents, nephews, nieces, cousins, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, co-workers, friends. Pray for those left behind. We pray for mercy on the souls that have been put uh, to sleep. Pray that, Father God, I will be done in all of this. In all of this, to your glory, Father, in Jesus' name, so be it. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. You're listening to the live Sabbath services of I Saw the Light Ministries dot com. This is Pastor Tim of I Saw the Light Ministries. And for the record, today's date is October the thirty first, two thousand fifteen, AD, in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's created calendar is the eighteenth day of the eighth month, eighteenth day of the eighth month. Don't forget to turn your clocks back one hour tonight when you go to bed. 
Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. What we're talking about today is spirit versus the letter of the law, that there is no need to physically crucify the flesh. No need to physically crucify all the physical needs of the flesh. Spirit versus the letter of the law dealing with the issue of crucifying the flesh. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on table, tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So some things are written but there are some things that don't need to be written because the Spirit should be able to reveal it. Even God said that I will write the law in your hearts. Right here, it's not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Like I said earlier, uh, concerning Halloween, that we don't have to read it on a, a website or in a book or have anybody to tell us if we have the Holy Spirit, truly have the Holy Spirit, and continue to grow in the Holy Spirit, continue to grow in maturity in Christ through the Holy Spirit, then the Spirit is going to make it evident. The light manifests the dark. The darkness is revealed by the light. That the law of God written on our hearts, common sense, and the Holy Spirit is going to reveal it to us. And and the same is true with a lot of things, that the Spirit will convict us of our sin, that the Spirit will tell us that it's wrong or this is right. The Spirit reveals things. Verse 4, such confidence we have through, through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our advocacy is from God who also made us advocate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now remember, Paul came from the background of being a Pharisee. He had went to school to learn the letter of the law. He knew the Scriptures front to back. I'm sure he could quote many, many, many Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, he was chief of the Pharisees. He was a leader of the Pharisees. So he wasn't a low-level Pharisee. So he would have been extremely knowledgeable in the letter of the law. And here he's preaching about 
the spirit of the law being more important, that the letter of the law kills, that the letter of the law kills. Now, the letter of the law not only kills spiritually, but physically. The letter of the law would kill physically. Stone people to death, stone witches and homosexuals and the adulterers. And by the letter of the law, you may really go hungry sometimes, even if you're not fasting. Uh, If you went by the letter of the law that you wouldn't be able to pick food on the Sabbath or cook on the Sabbath or wash dishes on the Sabbath or any such thing or gather wood for fire on the Sabbath, then the Sabbath would not be a pleasurable thing. The Sabbath would not be pleasing to God. The Sabbath would not be pleasing to his people. It would be a burden. The Sabbath would be a burden to his people. But the Sabbath is meant to be a rest and a day of worship. Worship should be pleasing to God and to us. Worship should be pleasing. It should be a pleasure to worship God. Uh, Keeping the Sabbath should be a pleasure for not only God, but for us. The Sabbath and the Holy Days ought not be a burden. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can tell us these things. If people are so focused on books, if people are so focused on what they read, but not as well focused on what does the Holy Spirit say? What is right? What is wrong? What does love say? What is the point behind this letter? What is the point behind this law? Let's continue to read verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, but will the ministry, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to even more be with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more that the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. A lot of people so focused on trying to be holy by the letter of the law, it condemns themselves and condemns everybody else. Well, I saw you gather far on the Sabbath. Or I saw you uh, with this. I saw you with that. It's a ministry of condemnation bondage of the legalism of you can't do this, you can't do that. It's condemnation. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, now that's talking about the true law of God became a condemning to people because they were not considering the spirit behind it. They were so focused on it says this and not realizing that it really didn't even need to be written. Do you have to have your father write you a note telling you to do this, to do that? 
Do we really need our Father to tell us to take out the trash, to make up your bed, so on, so on? These things ought not to have even been written. We should have just accepted what we verbally heard the voice of God say, do not touch that. The voice of God said, do not touch that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you will die. But once the law got written, well, they started depending on it. Well, I can't do anything that's not written. And I have to do it exactly the way it is written. Still not listening to the voice. Verse 10. For indeed... What had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. The voice is the glory that surpasses it. Who is the voice? The word of God is Jesus. He is the voice. So that same voice that spoke to Adam and Eve said, don't touch it, still still speaks to us today. Don't touch it. Do touch it or do or don't. The voice of God, the word of God that's not written, should take precedence over what is real. Verse 11, For if that which fades away, the old law, was with glory, much more that which remains, which is in glory. Christ said to the Father, Let me go back to be with you to be glorified. Verse 12, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because, it, it is, it, because it's removed in Christ. It is only through Christ that the veil is lifted to where we're not under the law. That is not a bondage to us. That is not a car sitting on top of our chest. Only through Christ is the spirit of the law fulfilled that we're listening to Christ uh, and Christ living in us. Christ knew how to keep the Sabbath in the spirit of the law. But over the years, since 2006, and especially since 2008, I've had many, many dealings with those under the law. I've had many dealings with the Hebrew roots and the Y-name people. Many dealings with these people. And every one of them has been a burden and very grievous experience with every one of them. And they are truly under the bondage of the old covenant and a veil that's not lifted. They don't know Christ. They are not our brothers and sisters. I've warned about this many times and I must continue to warn about it because they are a lurking danger. They are vampires. And they are a danger to our soul. So I must continue to warn about these people, as even Paul did. 
Now, verse 15, it says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And you can see more clear when that veil is taken away. When the veil is taken away, it is finalized that you are married. You may have been going through the process. You may have been, uh, you may have said, I do, but the kiss doesn't come until the veil is taken away. And it's not over with until the kiss. It's not over with until the sex. Then you are married. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, meaning you can actually do something. Liberty means freedom, that you're free to do something, that you're free to eat on the Sabbath, cook, wash dishes on the Sabbath, that you're free to do these things. These are necessary things. Washing dishes is a sanitation thing. You're free to do it. You have liberty under Christ. The Sabbath was never meant to starve a man or to let dishes lay dirty. The Sabbath was meant in order that we could take a day off from work and give us physical rest to where we don't have to work nine to five or whatever the hours are to give us rest from our daily routine and to give us a set appointed day of worship, which is organization. God likes organization. That you don't just pick a day or choose a day of your choosing because that's chaos. So we have, to, we have to have a set day and a set time for everybody to gather. God likes organization because he is not the God of confusion. So we have to have a set day. We have to have organization for the ministry. We have to have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We have to have organization. But God gave us the Sabbath for rest, pleasure, relaxation, and organization. A set day to worship. We worship every day, or we should be. But the Sabbath is a organized, formal, is a formal setting. We're here in a very, very, very formal setting. This is formal setting. Even though we're relaxed, we feel free, we can stand up, we can move around, we can raise our arms and praise, we can say amen. So we have liberty in the middle of a formal occasion. But this is a formal occasion and a a formal gathering, an organized, authorized, ordained, set apart, sanctified, sacred. We're in a sacred place when we're here. Our presence sanctifies this pavilion. This worship sanctifies this pavilion. This pavilion is holy ground when we are here. This ground becomes holy. 
Jacob said when he put the pillow of a stone behind his head and laid on that stone as a pillow and saw the ladder, which is really better translation, the stairway into heaven, the angels ascending and descending, and he became fearful. He said, I was in the house of the Lord, and I didn't know it. But where he was became holy. He said, I am in the house of the Lord, even though it was outdoors. We're outdoors now, but this is the house of the Lord right now. This is a house of God. Wherever we are, if we're under an oak tree or under an evergreen tree or in a house or a building or in the desert or in Africa or China, wherever we are having worship, that is the house of God. And it's holy and we ought to respect the house of God even now. We ought to respect it. Because this is an ordained, authorized, official, formal setting of God. Even when Moses approached the burning bush, which was the presence of God of that fire, God told Moses, take your shoes off, because it was holy ground. It was the house of God at that moment. The ground became holy. Even the ground itself became sanctified by the presence of God. And even though we have the presence of God in us every day, and God dwells in our homes, in our house, or he should be. But that's different than a formal setting. God is casual in your house. But when we gather together in a formal setting, even though we have liberty, it is a formal setting, and that ground becomes holy while we are here. And this is set apart for holy worship. So it's different. It's, it's more formal and than worshiping in your home, in your house. <clears throat> Amen. So we do have liberty, and it says where the Lord is, where the Lord is, the Lord is here. The Lord is in your home. The Lord is in your heart. He dwells in your temporary tabernacle. And where the Lord is, the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We should have liberty in our own homes. But yet many people in their own homes are under bondage. And they're under bondage in a lot of these churches, in the Catholic Church, they're under bondage. The Catholic Church, you can't raise your hands. That's forbidden to raise your hands in the Catholic Church. Raise your hands up like that, they'll carry you out. You can do it like this, but not like that. You gotta be quiet. And a lot of the Baptist churches, you gotta be quiet, keep your mouth shut, that's not liberty. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the bondage in these churches of man is legalism. Amen. It is the legalism putting them under bondage. That we are to have liberty. And liberty is completely opposite of legalism. Verse 18. That we all with unveiled face 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord or being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So by looking at Jesus, putting our focus, our attention on Jesus, listening to his voice, looking in his eyes, looking at his face, listening to him, we're being changed from legalism to liberty, from a form of glory to the present glory, from what was done away to what still exists and will always exist. Amen. One of these days, there will be no such thing as a Sabbath day or a holy day because every day is going to be the same one day when there's no longer any sun or moon that we will no longer have a time clock. But as long as we're in the flesh, we have a physical need to rest. And as long as we're in this flesh, we have a physical need to have appointed times to meet. We have physical needs that we should not neglect. We're being transformed, but none of this has yet attained until the resurrection. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Verse 1. Galatians 1, I mean 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians chapter 5. You know, there's some churches where they won't even let you drink water in the service. I've only seen one like that myself. But I saw one where they had a sign on the doors, no drinks, not even water. Talk about legalism. <laughs> of course, I didn't go in. I was going to until I saw that. It's like, no, I don't want to be in words like that. Chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Wow. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul spoke constantly. He was obsessed with preaching against legalism, preaching against the old way. And he called it a yoke of slavery. Verse 2, the whole I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's pretty strong words. That if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit. That's extremely strong and bold words. And yet there's still people today who teach that we still must be circumcised, that it was never done away with. 
And to say that, then we must tear a lot of pages out of the Bible, lots of pages. Verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So if he receives circumcision, he must do all the rest of the law. And the Jews say that there's 600 and some commandments, not just 10. 600 and some commandments. And if you're under obligation to do all of that, um, to do all that, to fulfill every one of those commandments, you would have to become a lawbreaker. You would have to become rebellious to man's government. You would have to. Because you would have to stone the adulterers. You would have to kill people. You would have to break man's laws now. You would have to stone the adulterers, the homosexual, the pagan, the witchcraft. You would have to be killing people. So this is pretty significant that he says that if you receive circumcision, you must do all the other things, everything written. Everything written is written, and you must do it. And there's people that believe that way. Verse 4, it says, you have been severed from Christ. That word severed is a pretty extreme word there. It talks, it's like cutting something from Christ. You're cut off from Christ. And you who are seeking to be justified by law, and there's a lot of people like that, you have fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are hoping for the hope of righteousness. Righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. It's the Spirit. It's the heart of the matter. But a lot of people's hearts are dark and wicked when they're compromising with evil. It is what's in the heart. But people think that grace and faith and heart and love and mercy allows them to do evil, and it don't allow them to do evil. We don't have license to kill, murder, steal, or partake in evil holidays and evil things. We, we don't have grace and mercy and liberty to do evil. Liberty does not mean license to do evil or compromise with evil. It does not mean that. Liberty means the ability to do things that are not truly against the spirit of the law of God. Liberty means to have freedom to do what is not truly illegal in the mind of God. Verse 7. You are running well. You are doing good. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Somebody turned them around, changed their mind. Last night I saw somebody on Facebook that said that used to, on Halloween, they would lock the doors, turn their blinds down, but then they realized it was a great opportunity to hand out tracts. And so now they hand out candy 
for trick-or-treating and tracks. And I just had to tell that person straightforward on a public post that I'm sorry that you have compromised and embraced the very evil that you once stood against. It is sad that people at one time were doing well but then somebody hindered them. Somebody came in with the false gospel, the gospel of freedom to do anything you want to do, the gospel of compromise, a watered-down gospel. It's sad that people have come in and stowed in people away from the truth. And it's sad that they allowed somebody to do that to them. They wasn't very well rooted in Christ in the first place. Verse 8. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you. I'm a mark out of dough. That don't belong there at all. You see it's in italics, slanted, and it don't it don't even belong there. Not even in the spirit. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. We're supposed to be single, narrow-minded. We're supposed to be narrow-minded. We shouldn't have any other view, and we shouldn't allow anybody to change our mind from the truth. Now, if we have a false view, yeah, we should allow somebody to change our mind. We've got to be able to learn the difference. We've got to be willing to self-examine and hear people out examine the evidence, but we know when somebody is trying to take us away from the truth. They're trying to say, you can keep Christmas, you can keep Easter, you can keep Halloween. We know, no. Put your guard up, put your fence up, be narrow-minded. A lot of times we are to be narrow-minded. Verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren... If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So the cross, Jesus, the blood of Christ is abolished through circumcision. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Literally, that they would mutilate themselves, that they would cut themselves off. It says here in the study notes, the Greek word was often used for castration, such as in the call of Sabal, whose priests were self-made Enochists. So they, I mean, there was a denomination of that time that would actually do more than just the foreskin. They would actually castrate themselves. So it's like if you do one letter of the law, you must go the whole way. That if they're going to cut the foreskin, I wish they would just go ahead and cut everything. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's what I was saying earlier. Just because we have freedom 
to do what is not truly illegal in the eyes of God, mind of God, spirit of God, does not give us freedom to commit adultery, to do things that are that are sinful. Opportunity for the flesh, but but through love serve one another. All Ten Commandments is how we serve God and one another. And all trueness of obedience to God is how you serve God and how you serve one another. It's all about how you serve God and one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of people will twist that and say that's all you have to do is love. Well, in a way that's true because if you truly loved God and you truly loved every person as yourself, then you would be keeping all Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath. And they don't realize that. It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in this. That don't mean done away in this. That's opposite. Completely opposite. You cannot say that the law, that the Ten Commandments was done away but it's fulfilled in this. In other words, it's coming to the reality of what the commandments were about. Fulfillment. Coming to reality. Coming to the fullness of it. Coming to what it was really meant to be about from the beginning. That this is how you show love toward God as you have a formal day. That you have a gathering together. You come together, all worship together. You come together in peace and unity to worship God that you don't lie, steal, and cheat against one another, and so forth. Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. For I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Talking about sin. This is not talking about uh, denying the needs of the flesh, food, water, uh, rest. This is not talking about uh, physical things so much as it is spiritual things that you would not carry out drugs, alcoholism, so forth, which are physical things but spiritual things. Verse 17. For the flesh set its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So people would twist this, the Holiness Pentecostal Church would twist this in order to teach legalism. They use this, which is meant to teach freedom from the law, to teach legalism to a law that was never even written, to things they've made up, that you can't do this, you can't do that. It's horrible how this verse is twisted. So, verse 17, For the flesh sets itself against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So they would use that to say you can't go to the beach. You can't listen to country music. You can't have a beer. You can't take your shoes off. You can't take your shirt off. You have to wear a shirt and tie all the time. You have to listen only to gospel music. You have to do this. You can't do this. You can't have no pleasure. You can't have no rest. 
you got to be worshiping God 24-7, and that's it. Only worship God. Only worship God in your music. Only worship God in this. Only worship God in that. Only worship God. Only God. Only God. Only God. No wonder the term Bible thumper came up. It's true. Bunch of Bible thumpers. Letter of the law people who give no liberty for anybody to do anything. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, if you're led by the Spirit, you don't have to look in the Scriptures every time wondering, can I do this or not? The Spirit would tell you what you can do and what you can't do. The Spirit would tell you this, that, yeah, it's okay to do this or it's wrong to do this. And the law doesn't become a bondage to you. The law doesn't become a burden to you. This doesn't mean the law is done away as far as the Ten Commandments, but we know that the circumcision was done away. We know that the killing of blood and goats and all that was done away. We know the unclean foods were done away. We know that a lot of the law was done away with, but not the entirety of the law. And the Ten Commandments was not done away. We know these things by reading all the scriptures. We must read all the scriptures at least once. And if there's anybody listening or will listen to my voice that has not read all the scriptures, I encourage you to make that a goal and start working on that goal. We need to read all of the Bible or else we cannot understand it. It's like trying to it's like people that have watched five minutes of a movie and they think they understand the movie. You don't, and you can't. So we've got to read the entire Bible. But we should also come to the point to where we don't have to turn to the letter every time to figure something out. Now, there's times we absolutely should, absolutely. There are times to where we may not be in tune with the Spirit. We may, we may not be listening to the Spirit well enough that we do need to go to the Scriptures. And there may be a lack of clarity sometimes. There may be confusion that's been caused by human beings. There may be confusion that's been caused by Babylon. There may be confusion that's been caused by somebody, someone, and therefore we turn to the Scriptures. But we have to get to the point to where that we don't have to do that every time because we already know what the Spirit says. But then there's a lot of people that say that they know what the Spirit says, and they don't. They don't know either one, the written or the verbal. So it's got to be true. We've got to be true. We've got to know the truth in the Spirit, and in the letter. What is the truth? Let's go to Colossians 2. Book of Colossians, chapter 2. That's right after Philippians, which is after Ephesians. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 1.
Colossians 2, verse 1. So I want you to know, it says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. So here, we know that John wrote to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Here, Paul mentions the Laodicean church that he has a struggle for the people at the city of Colossia in the city of Laodicea, that Paul has a struggle for these people. Because in the spirit of love, Paul sees all the problems in the church. Paul sees the needs. Paul sees the weaknesses and the problems. And that does create a struggle in the heart and mind of a pastor or apostle, or evangelist, it does create a struggle in a minister. And the word minister actually means servant. That's what the word minister means, servant. And a servant will have frustration and struggle when their master, those that they serve, are having problems. And so this church that he was serving uh, having problems, and it's a struggle for Paul. And it says, for all those who have not personally seen my face. So there was people that he had written through the mail, uh, people he had sent word to that he had never met in person yet, but he still cared for them, still loved them. And it said, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge, a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Okay, so we're back here now. We're back here now, Colossians 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in true knowledge of Christ, God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude 
delude you with persuasive argument, persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted. So if we are walking in him and firmly rooted, then we have stability. So that verse 5 uses the word good discipline and stability. Then verse 6 is walking in him. Verse 7, rooted. So we have to be rooted to where we be stable. Verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. So once you are rooted, then you can start springing up through the ground, start growing up, become thicker and better, stronger in the Lord as you grow up in Christ as a plant using the analogy of a plant, built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. So applying it to things that we see in our own lives today, it is philosophy of men that nothing is wrong with Halloween, Christmas, and Easter. That is just child's play. That's a philosophy of men, an empty deception, according to the tradition of men. But he's mostly talking about here, to that particular time frame, about legalism. Again, that he, he, Paul was obsessed about it. He had to be obsessed about it. It frustrated him because it was a real struggle in the church, still is today. Nothing changes. Nothing new under the sun. So he's talking about Judaism. He's talking about Hebrew roots. He's talking about the Pentecostal church, which is a very legalistic church. According to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's a very significant statement about Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is God. Verse 10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. He raised him from the dead. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So it wasn't the blood of goats that did the forgiveness, only the blood of Jesus. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile toward us. Now, a lot of people twist verse 14 to say, they twist this to say this proves that he nailed 
even the Ten Commandments, all the law, everything on the cross, which he didn't. What did he nail to the cross? Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. The decree against us is you must go to the lake of fire, that you must die the second death, uh, that you must be stoned, that you must die. That is the certificate of debt. A certificate of debt means an invoice that you must die. An invoice, a verdict, a judgment that you must die. That's not saying law. That's not saying commandments. It's saying certificate of debt, an invoice, a verdict that you must die, which was hostile toward us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross. So what did he nail to the cross was the verdict of death that we no longer have to die because he forgave us through the cross that he forgave us. Verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, talking about demons, he made a public display of them, having trumpet over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge because you've already been declared innocent You've already been declared that you will not die in the lake of fire. Therefore, no one has come as your judge in a legalistic manner, saying, because you have not been circumcised, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. Or because you're going to eat food, because you're going to eat pork, because you're going to have food, or you're going to have drink, you're going to have alcohol in respect to the festival, that you're going to celebrate a festival, New moon or Sabbath day, because what Paul is dealing with here is legalism. He's not dealing with uh, that the commandments are done away. He's not. He's not dealing with that the Sabbath's done away because it wasn't. What he's dealing with is a group of people that's trying to tell this church at the Colossians and Laodicea these people were being taught that you that you should not celebrate that you should not fulfill any of the needs of the flesh, that you should not fulfill any pleasure or need of the flesh, physically speaking, that you should not eat, that you should not drink, that you should not keep the Sabbath. These people were preaching against the Sabbath, and he's coming against them. Don't let them judge you for keeping the Sabbath. This proves we should keep the Sabbath. We should not let the Pentecostals tell us that we should not keep the Sabbath. This is a, a verse preaching against a cult that existed then that we now know today as Pentecostalism. And the Pentecostals want to twist this against us. And Paul is speaking about them judging us. And these Pentecostal people of that time back then thought you couldn't drink and you couldn't celebrate. It was an attempt here in the notes that says, these verses point out the fertility of attempt to achieve holiness by rigorous self-neglect and even self-infliction. But this call, this group of people thought that you had to deny all mental pleasure and physical pleasure. Therefore, you would not allow 
to drink or to celebrate at all because it was foolishness to them, which is what Pentecostals would say. Verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he's saying these holy days are pointing to prophecy that's not yet fulfilled. That's what he's saying, that these are a shadow of things to come. They are prophetic. And the substance or the body belongs to Christ doesn't mean it's done away with, but means it points to Christ. That the substance of these holy days is Christ. The substance of these holy days is not legalism. It's not death. It's not bondage. The substance or the body of these holy days, of the Sabbath, of the new moons, the Sabbath day, belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So it belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. So this cult had the problem of worship of angels, which people still have that problem today. That's not gone away either. They have their graven images of angels, especially with the Catholic Church, but even with Pentecostal Church, all the angels they have in their houses. And if somebody dies, they, they automatically become an angel, and they're, they're your guardian angel. That's a worship of angels when they say that. I feel my guardian angel around me every day. That's a worship of angels. Because only God watches after you every day. They're putting their dead loved one in the place of God. But self-abasement, you've got to deny yourself of all pleasure. You don't have to deny yourself of all pleasure. You can celebrate. You can, as long as it's not a pagan holiday. Because it's not licensed to sin. But I want you to notice that the Sabbath is a need. It is a physical need. It is a spiritual need. It is a mental need. It is an emotional need. We need to keep the Sabbath. It is not death to us. It is life to us. It gets us rested up from the hard week and gets us refueled and re-energized for the next day, tomorrow, which is the day of work. And so, it is a, the Sabbath is a pleasure to us. A pleasure to be with my brothers and sisters. It's a pleasure to preach the Word of God. It is a pleasure uh, to have the meals that we usually have on the Sabbath. It is a pleasure. These are pleasurable things. We don't have to neglect pleasure. We need rest. We can't always be fasting, praying, worshiping. We need rest. And so, even on the Sabbath day, we don't have to take every minute and every hour to focus on God. We can 
lay down and rest our eyes. We can relax. Sometimes I, I confess to you, even though it will condemn me, that on the Sabbath day, I even listen to country music sometimes because it relaxes me and it clears my mind. It gets a lot of things off my mind. It gets a lot of frustration off my mind. It really helps me. And it's what I have to do sometimes to get a little bit of peace. And can I find peace in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But I can't be focused on Jesus Christ 24-7. It would drive me insane. It would kill me because the Spirit will kill the flesh. You can only have so much of the Spirit without it becoming a bondage to you. You can only have so much of the Spirit before it starts killing the flesh. And it would drive a man insane because this flesh cannot handle the Spirit 24-7. It dwells in you 24-7, but you can't be focusing on that Spirit 24-7. And so I also profess that when I went to Florida, I had a good time, praise God. (laughs) And hopefully maybe we're going to go to Texas here soon to baptize a couple, a couple, Jenny and Joshua, to baptize them. And I hope maybe, hopefully, to take a couple of days, uh, either before or after that, go to the beach and relax and rest because I know that God has told me multiple times to rest which is very, 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 very difficult for me to do because there's so much to be done in a short time. So how can I rest? How can I rest? I'm a workaholic. There's always something that must be done. But I have a need to rest. And God is trying to tell me do what you're supposed to do, do what you need to do but rest, because that's also what you're supposed to do. That's also what you need to do. Rest is a need. So God gives us a Sabbath to fulfill our physical need, not only our spiritual need, but our physical need. And our physical needs are spiritual needs. The physical need to rest is a mental, emotional, and spiritual uh, 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 effect upon your spirit and upon your mind. So when we get wore out in the flesh, we get wore out in the spirit. When we get wore out in the spirit, we get wore out in the flesh. Focusing on worship and Jesus and reading the scriptures constantly, every day, every minute of the day, will burn you out. And focusing on the ministry constantly will burn you out. We don't want to get burnt out. Dwelling in the Spirit of God in the lake of fire 24-7 will burn you out. The flesh can only handle so much of it. So it's okay to go to the beach. It's okay to take a vacation. It's okay to take a second day off. Yes, tomorrow is a day of work. And did you know it's not only a commandment to rest the seventh day, but it's also a commandment to work on the first day of the week. It is. 
Because in the Ten Commandments, it said, you shall work six days a week. And that is part of the Ten Commandments. We are commanded to work six days a week. But I'm going to rest tomorrow, praise God. Because the spirit of that law was not to kill me. The spirit of that law was that we take care of the garden, of the farm, of our family, and the financial needs of the family, and food and clothing and shelter. These are physical needs that must be met. And so the way that God organized it is work six days a week, less than seven. That is a perfect thing to do. But we don't live in a perfect world. And the only way I can get rest, because really I don't rest on the Sabbath, because I've got to load the car, I've got to finish preparing this, I've got to finish preparing the sermon, I've got to uh, get home before dark and everything else, and we've got to supper usually and stuff like that. I can't rest on the Sabbath. So to me, I have to rest on the first day of the week. Am I breaking the law? I'm breaking the letter of the law, but I'm not breaking the spirit of the law. Amen? So we have to do what we have to do and not be under bondage. It's okay to rest far. It's okay to gather afar on the Sabbath. It's okay to cook on the Sabbath. It's okay to take a vacation. It's okay to go to the beach. It's okay to take your shoes off and your socks off and walk on the beach. Take your shirt off if you're the guy and walk on the beach. It's okay. And the Pentecostals will condemn you and take you under the law. While usually telling you you're not supposed to be under the law. And then there they put you under the law. But I want you to notice that these things in verse 16 are pleasurable things and they are needs at the same time. Food is a physical need, but it should be pleasurable. Amen? Food should be pleasurable. Drink is a physical thing, but it should be pleasurable. The festival of New Moon and the Sabbath is a commandment, but it should be pleasurable. So we don't have to have self-abasement. We don't have to afflict our soul to earn God. Too much we're trying to earn God when really we just need to get to know God. And once we get to know God, then we'll know what we can and what we can't do. Let's go to Mark 7. Mark chapter 7. Verse 9. Mark 7, verse 
chapter 7, verse 9, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. But Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have, that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So it says here in the study notes, the word korban, uh, it says Hebrew, but it would be a Syrian, a Syrian word meaning given to God. It refers to any gift or sacrifice of money or goods uh, an individual vowed to dedicate specifically to God. As a result of such a dedication, money or goods could be used only for sacred purposes. So what these people were doing is, instead of helping their parents, their elderly parents, they were saying, no, I have to give this money to God. I'm not going to take care of my parents. The parents are going to have to do without. They're going to have to do without this. They're going to have to do without that because I've dedicated this money to God. And so they thought they were, in a way, they thought that they were keeping the law of God, but they were breaking the law of God because they were not meeting the physical needs of the people. They were not meeting the physical needs of their own family, of their family, of their parents. And that's not love. And if it's not love, then it breaks the Ten Commandments. Amen? So they were legalistic, so legalistic that they could not see the needs of the people. Or even if they saw the needs of the people, they were not willing to meet it because of what they thought they had to do for God. It's legalism, it's religionism, it's religious. And they were not doing right, of course. Let's look at 1 Timothy 5. So I believe that if you have elderly parents, or if you have a widow that you know of, that you don't have to give your tithe to a preacher or a church organization, but you can give your tithe to your elderly parents. You can buy food for your elderly parents out of your tithe. You can buy food for your wife, your children uh, out of your tithes, if that's necessary. But that should not become licensed to say I'm not going to pay my tithes because I can't afford to pay my tithes when in fact, you can. You can afford to pay your tithes. You just got to give up your cigarettes. You just got to give up your Pepsi, your Mountain Dew. Uh, but you can afford. You can afford to take care of your family and pay tithes. But if you can't, and there are those situations, circumstances, where people can't give 10% to the ministry and still feed their family, if that's really and truly true, if that's a real truth, then God expects you to take care of your family first. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. 
verse 1. 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. How to treat elderly people, even outside of your immediate family, to treat elderly people with respect. Do not do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather re, with, uh, appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, and all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. So there's there's such thing as a real widow than a fake willow, and I've had to deal with those too. Verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. In other words, the person who has first, first priority, duty, responsibility to a a widow is her family, her children, her grandchildren, her brothers, the people of her physical family has first priority of responsibility and duty to the woman that has lost her husband, regardless of age. Verse 5. Now she who is a widow indeed and has been left alone she don't have families to take care of her, has fixed her hope on God, continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things. So she's wasting her money on drugs. She's wasting her money on things that she don't really need. They're just sinful pleasures. We're not supposed to take care of such a woman. Whether she has family or don't have family. And people say, but she's a widow, she's a widow, we've got to take care of her. Well, if she's spending $200 a month on cigarettes, well, she can afford to take care of herself, and I'm not going to give her no money. If she's starving to death, she's doing it herself. Is that love? Absolutely it's love, because that money can go to somebody that really needs it, that can't take care of themselves, or to the gospel. We're not going to give our money to people who smoke cigarettes, period. Verse 7. Describe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So these people that were saying that they had to give their money to God and not to their parents, Guess what? They're lost and undone. They don't love the parents, and they're neglecting the commandments. They're neglecting the Ten Commandments, and they're worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list, only the list of people to help, only if she is not less than 60 years old. So these younger women, less than 60, they should... Go get married again, really. And the scriptures say that here in a minute. If they're still young enough to get married, let them find a husband to take care of them. That's what my grandmother thought. That's what my grandmother said. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works 
And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work, well then, you can put her on the list. If these are, if this a good woman, you can put her on the list. Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel essential desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous uh, pledge. So, This is a, a woman that's being led by her sexual needs. That she is being led to get married again to fulfill her sexual need. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossip and busybody talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married. So see here, he says that they should get married, you see. But those that are doing it just for sex, well, that's wrong. But if it is to get a man to take care of the family and the love is true, well, then that is just and acceptable and okay. And it's better for a younger widow to get married than to put the financial burden on the church. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married and bear children and keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Notice it does not mention that he wants them to go and get a job. He don't mention that. He mentions a lot of things he wants them to do. He wants them to get married. He wants them to have children. He wants them to keep house, but does not mention get a job. So I, I definitely believe a woman should stay at home, take care of the family, take care of her man, take care of the children. I definitely believe that it's wrong for a woman to work. I don't care what the situation is. Uh, I just have to speak the truth. Uh, But I'm sure that there are exceptions, and I'm not going to be overly legalistic about it. If a woman, for for example, there may be times that a woman is not free to marry. What is she going to do then? If she's not free to marry, and if she's not above 60, and if she's not a widow, what is she going to do? So again, we shouldn't be over-legalistic and say, it says this, it says this, therefore you cannot work. Definitely, there are some women that have to work. But it is God's will to first and primarily, if a woman is eligible for marriage and acceptable for marriage, she's not still married to a previous husband, Um, and nobody can take care of her, and she's not a widow, then she's got to do something. She can't die. The letter of the law should not be a bondage to death. All right, so then it says here in verse 
14, therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow state. If any woman who is a believer has to, to dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So we do have to set priorities on who to help and who not to help, and who can receive help from other methods, because you can't just be helping everybody. You want to help everybody, but you just simply cannot do that in the true church that's not receiving so much money as the false church. So we have to set priorities. Let's go to the book of Exodus, chapter 21. Exodus Exodus 21, verse 10. Talking about not having to crucify the flesh physically. Don't have to kill yourself. Don't have to cut. Don't have to pluck your eyes out. Don't have to cut your hand off. Uh, Don't have to crucify the flesh physically. You can have physical needs and physical pleasures as long as they do not uh, go against the will of God. Verse 10, it says, if he takes to himself another woman, this is talking about a man takes a second wife, a third wife, whatever it may be, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her congenial rights. So, if a man takes a second wife, he is not to reduce the benefits to the first wife. He should not reduce the first wife's food her clothing, or the amount of sex given to the first wife. Verse 11, if he will not do these three things, if he will not keep a woman fed, clothed, and sexed to give appropriate sexual need, if he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, if a man is not taking care of his family, If a man is not taking care of his wife's food and clothes, that woman is free to leave him. That's what this says. Does the New Testament agree? Let's go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if she's leaving him to get food and clothing and she's not a widow, then what is she going to do? She may have to work, and that would be acceptable. 
But if she is still married at home with her husband, then she should not be working. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to the husband. That's talking about sex. It's in the context of The physical flesh, the body, fasting, that you don't have sex when fasting. That's the context. So where did Paul get this? He knew the letter of the law. Where did he get this from? He got it from Exodus, of chapter 21 that we had just read. Uh, and if we should not neglect the sex, then surely we should not neglect the food and the clothing. Even Jesus talked about that, about uh, uh, clothing and uh, feeding. Now let's turn to Matthew, I think it's, uh, yeah, Matthew 12. Now, uh, food is a need, but it can be pleasurable. Matthew 12. Verse 1. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. This is not corn. It's talking about wheat some kind of a grain on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him with a condemning spirit, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you, Jesus said, Have you not read, have you not looked in the Scriptures what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law? Now, that word law there is not Torah. I looked and Jesus never, ever, ever said the word Torah. If he did, it's not written. There's a lot of things not written. He might have said it since the Syrian language was uh, still around at that time as well as the Greek, but it was never written in any of the scriptures that Jesus said the word Torah. This is a completely different word. So have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Now, as he's saying that the priest in the temple really and truly broke the spirit of the law? No, he's not saying that. Because people will take this and twist it because they say it says they broke the law. It says that Jesus 
broke the Sabbath. Jesus never broke the Sabbath. Jesus never broke the law. It's what it's talking about is these priests broke the letter of the law. But they did not break the spirit of the law when it comes to eating this bread because they were hungry. It says they are innocent. How can you be innocent when you break the law? You can't. You can break the letter of the law and still be innocent. But you can't break the spirit of the law and be innocent. That's impossible. You cannot break the spirit of the law and still be innocent. That's impossible. You can break the letter of the law and still be in agreement with the spirit of the law and therefore be innocent. So Jesus and his disciples knew how to keep the spirit of the law over and above the letter, even before the crucifixion. The spirit of the law was always the intent. Even before the crucifixion, the spirit of the law had always been the true intent. Verse 6, But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, because they were so focusing on the sanctuary of the physical temple building. But Jesus didn't speak against the temple. He spoke against them for how they treated the temple, for how they thought of the temple, how they worshipped the temple more than the Spirit. Verse 7, But if you had known what this means, that I desire compassion or mercy would be a good translation. I desire mercy, compassion, and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord or God or Master of the Sabbath or ruler of the Sabbath. So he is not speaking against keeping the Sabbath, but he's speaking about keeping it in the spirit of the law. And to keep it in the spirit of the law meant to meet the physical needs. And Jesus is a rabbi, he is a priest, he is God, he is master, he is teacher. And so he is meeting the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs. And pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers need to meet not only the spiritual needs, but also the mental, emotional, and physical needs of the congregation, as Jesus himself did. I believe that's why he spent a lot of time on the water and met with the fishermen, because they were laid-back people. And I believe, really believe that. That has something to do with it. Let's go to the book of Acts 4. Acts 4. Verse 
Acts 4, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not any of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because of this. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each uh, as any had need. So these apostles would consider everybody and would consider, well, that person has this, that person has that, that person has this need, that person has that need, and would distribute it as necessary to cover all the needs of the people due due to the selfishness of the people that would sell and give this to the church. So this shows much more than a tithe. This is is going far beyond tithe. Uh, I would say tithe is actually, to give only a tithe is selfishness, actually. God expects us to give as needed to the situation. Um, and he said, what measure you measure with should be measured back to you. So if we measure that, this is exactly what the law says, so I give only that and no more. Well, he's going to give us only what the law says we can have and no more. These people was willing to let go of material things their pride, their possessions, what they had worked for, what they had earned, what truly belonged to them, and just become selfish and fulfill the needs of all the people. Now, that's doubtful that we hardly ever would see that in our lifetime, but we might see it in the future uh, because the Bible is being repeated. My point is that it is the responsibility of the church to fulfill physical needs, not only spiritual, but physical. And that is why some churches do the food pantries and everything like that, which is a good thing. Uh, Even the Lutheran church has fed me and Brittany many times and Baptist church uh, and so forth. So even the evil people can do wrong. And if the evil people and the blind people and the deceived people and Babylon can do so right, then how come the true body of Christ cannot do so right? And I've had many people say to me, and it's been true, and I've said it myself, the lost people treat me better than the righteous people. The lost people treat me better than church. Lost people treat me better than Christians. And that's so true. I've had lost people to be a whole lot better to me than what so called Christians have been. Uh, they've really, lost people's really been there for me many times in many, many different ways. Because the church gets so legalistic, so called up. Uh, 
in the letter of the law so they cannot see the needs of the people. And I've had people that thought they were going to heaven to come bring me their breadcrumbs, literally. Bring me their crumbs while they had left over from supper and thought they were doing so good when they had plenty, plenty, plenty money to buy me an entire supper identical to what they had just bought. And they thought they were doing so good. And I was actually offended. I wasn't helped. I was offended by their greed. People that talk about greed. You know, the people that talk about greed the most are the most greedy. And the people that complain about being poor the most are the richest. I've known people with big, giant, fancy RVs and uh, nice houses and rent. I don't know how many people and complain about being poor. Actually say they're poor and complain about it. I don't have money for this. I don't have money for that. And yet they got so many people renting from them and a house and a giant RV and this and that. Got everything in the world and money coming in and spending hundreds of dollars a month on cigarettes and complain about being poor. But the people that talk about being poor the most are the richest and the people that talk about greed the most are the most greedy. That's what I've experienced in life. People that talk about greed the most, talk put other people down for greed the most, are actually the most greedy. That's been my experience. I think people need to stop talking about being poor and stop talking about other people and realize how good they got it. Stop complaining and start feeling the needs of the other people equal to themselves and even over and above themselves. God needs a church. God needs a church that is a church of love. He needs a bride. People say he don't need us. They don't know what they're talking about. God needs us. He created us because he needed us. He needed children. He needed love. He needed family. God needs a church without start, without wrinkle, without blemish, without greed, without negativity, without condemning. We have the right to judge a certain way. We have a right to judge evil. We have a right to condemn evil, to abhor evil. But we need to be careful not to become a judging people, condemning people. We've all known those type of people who just have a spirit of condemnation. Just very judgmental people. So we have to be careful not to become like them. We have to be careful that we're not trying to earn our way to heaven, but rather love our way to heaven. Not earn our way to heaven through the physical letter of the law, but love our way to heaven. Love God and love man. This is the greatest commandment and fulfills all the law. Let's see if there's anything that I've got written down that I might have left out. 
We do, or anything I want to repeat, but we do have a spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical need to rest, to relax, to have fun. God doesn't want a boring church or a religious church. He wants a loving church. In my experience with love is that love knows how to have fun. That's been my experience with love, is that love knows how to relax. Love is not easily offended. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not uptight. Love exercises liberty. And love helps. And love serves. Love does not hinder. Love does not condemn. Love gives liberty. Do not confuse fleshly need with fleshly lust. Fleshly lust is opposite of fleshly need. I believe that pretty much covers what I need to say, what I'm supposed to say. And don't forget to turn the clocks back tonight. Don't answer your doors to the devil. There's nothing you can say to change them at this moment. But we can start trying hard in the next few weeks to distribute flyers discerning Christmas that maybe somebody's eyes be woken that maybe somebody would read the flyer and start praying or would research the history of Christmas. So let's switch or transfer our work of evangelism from Halloween to Christmas uh, and try to reach these people before they get in the midst of the demonic spirit of excellence. Amen. So we'll turn the internet off. We'll have questions and answers here. We're not going to have a meal today since we're fasting against Halloween, fasting for people's salvation and deliverance. Um, for those that's listening over the internet, you've been listening to the live Sabbath services of I Saw the Light Ministries.com. I really encourage you to check out the website, I Saw the Light Ministries.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm going to talk to the congregation today about maybe, hopefully, moving the times for services because we're moving the clocks back an hour, and I've got to get back before dark because it's difficult for me to see the drive at night, especially in the car headlights blind my eyes. So if anybody's listening live, that would like to listen next week, please check the website to see if the hours will be different or not and what time for next week. That we have live and recorded sermons every Sabbath, every Saturday. Thank you for listening and all this in Jesus' name. Amen.